Welcome to uh, another episode of Essential Environmental. I'm uh, Terry Montoya. As always, I try and explain federal and state environmental laws, environmental policies, and emerging trends from a business standpoint and from a standpoint of um, trying to assist parties that are regulated by the government in minimizing environmental liability, but also in an understandable way, I hope. That is my aspiration. You let me know. At the end, I'll I'll give you my contact information and uh, you let me know how successful I was in that regard. This podcast, like all of my podcasts, reflect uh, my opinions and the opinions of uh, any guests. Not the firm of Alvarado Smith, of which uh, I am a partner. This episode is presented for uh, informational purposes only and is not intended to be construed or used as general legal advice or any solicitation of, uh, of any type. I'm giving you a 500-foot uh, overview of concepts and issues, but if you have something in particular that you wanted to um, reach out and talk to me about, you will have my uh, contact information. So, last episode we talked about if you're a buyer of commercial property, the importance of having a competent, complete, and thorough phase one environmental site assessment so that you would know if there's any, quote, recognized environmental conditions, end of quote, that may be impacting the property. And if there are, you may not want to buy the property as a buyer, or you may want to renegotiate purchase price to limit your um, environmental liability. Uh, there's lots of options that a buyer would have there. As I mentioned in the podcast, I, you know, I help buyers identify recognized environmental conditions and determine whether they want to walk away from the site or whether they want to renegotiate the deal. But we're going to be talking about today, what if you wanted to purchase contaminated property? Those um, go by the common name of brownfields. What if you expressly wanted to purchase a property that has known contamination, but you want to make sure that you fall under the protection of the bona fide prospective purchaser defense to any future liability? So in other words, you want to buy it at a price that reflects its contaminated, impacted condition, and you want to avoid either the federal EPA or the Department of Toxic Substances Control or the Regional Water Quality Control Board or their companions in, in other states from saying, you walked into this property that's uh, contaminated and now you're responsible for cleaning it up. So in order to discuss the bona fide purchaser, a uh, prospective purchaser defense, when it applies and the, the threshold elements and the continuing obligation elements, and that's that's the part in, in, in my 30-plus years of being an environmental attorney, the continuing obligations part is what the bona fide party forgets to complain with and will extinguish the defense. But they're all important. We're going to talk about them in order. You want to make sure that you um, you meet all of those to qualify for the defense, which is a defense to the comprehensive environmental response 
Compensation and Liability Act, which you know from our prior podcast, and you may have heard um, if you're in the business of, of, of dealing with impacted uh, properties, commercial properties, industrial properties, that's the federal statute that goes by CERCLA. And thank goodness for that, because saying the name is a mouthful. So as a brief reminder, CERCLA, or it's also known as the Superfund, that allows the Environmental Protection Agency, easier to call it the EPA, to step in and respond to any actual or threatened uh, release of hazardous substances by either conducting the cleanup itself or by suing parties that it deems to be responsible for the cleanup and to reimburse the EPA for the work, the investigatory work that it has done already to date to determine that the property is subject to um, CERCLA-ordered cleanup and to reimburse the EPA if the responsible parties decide to undertake the cleanup for themselves itself, depending on you know how many parties there are, for its ongoing um, you know oversight activities. Now, responsible parties is is the key term here. Responsible parties includes current owners of private sites that were contaminated by the release of of hazardous substances, former owners and former businesses, manufacturers of the hazardous substances that are now impacting the soil, and those entities that have arranged for the transportation of those hazardous substances uh, to the site and the transportation and or uh, removal of the substances from from um, truck beds, for instance, has caused the release of contaminants into the ground. Those are the four parties of liability. But if you're a buyer and you want to buy a brown field, buy a contaminated property, you're going to be walking into the current owner responsible party category of potential liability. CERCLA imposes strict liability. Brutal, brutal statute. Strict liability means that fault, negligence, intent, those are all irrelevant to your liability as the owner. You can say, I, you know, I bought this property, but I didn't, I didn't um, release the contaminants on the property. I didn't intend on, on doing anything bad. Um, I wasn't negligent. None of those are ever going to work. If you fall into one of those uh, four categories, of responsible party status you're in and you got to fight with the EPA over what the cleanup should look like. Circular's policy is that the government should not be responsible for paying for the cleanup of contaminated property. That obligation should rest on the shoulders and more appropriately the pocketbooks of responsible parties here to include the purchaser, now owner of the property that has been previously contaminated. In our last podcast, as I mentioned, we discussed the limited defenses to circular liability, in particular the innocent purchaser defense. The innocent purchaser defense allowed potential purchasers the ability to purchase property after performing a phase one environmental site assessment, provided that no concerns for the release of hazardous substances were identified. If a potential 
concern was found, then a purchaser would have to walk away from the purchase or understand that on closing it would become an owner or operator under CERCLA and have liability for the contamination on the site. Here, we're talking about a buyer who knows the property uh, is a brownfield, but wants to purchase the property and not fall into the buzzsaw of CERCLA liability. So, in 1995, EPA created what's known as the Bonafide Prospective Purchaser Defense to encourage the purchase and redevelopment of brownfield sites. What is the Bonafide Prospective Purchaser Defense? That defense allows a purchaser to conduct all appropriate inquiries and to purchase the property with the knowledge of hazardous substance contamination without facing CERCLA owner liability. As with the innocent purchaser defense, the purchaser must perform a phase one environmental site assessment consistent with the EPA's phase one site assessment standards. We discussed that in great length in our last podcast. However, that is the first of 10 requirements for obtaining bona fide prospective purchaser status. Many purchasers, as I, as I mentioned uh, initially, focus on the phase one environmental site assessment requirement at the, res- at the expense rather of the remaining seven requirements, some placing uh, continuing obligations that must be met to uh, the bona fide purchaser status as something in the past, something that's in a drawer, and they forget to get to those, and that will destroy your defense. In this podcast, we're going to go over all 10 conditions to obtain and preserve bona fide purchaser, prospective purchaser status, including the continuing obligation requirements that should remain in focus following the performance of a phase one environmental site assessment. All right. So the first category of um, bona fide prospective purchaser requirements are what's known as the threshold requirements. As a threshold requirement, a bona fide prospective purchaser is a person or tenant of a person that acquires ownership of the property after the release of the hazardous substances and after the date of January 11, 2002, which is an EPA deadline date, who meets the all-appropriate inquiries standard. There are um, three threshold BFPP requirements. I'm getting tired, ladies and gentlemen, of saying bona fide prospective purchaser, so I'm going to go with BFPP. There are three threshold requirements. First, the property must be acquired after January 11, 2002. We're far down the line here, so that should not be an issue. Second, there can be no release or disposal of hazardous substance after the purchase. Remember, you're buying a brownfield, a property, a property that has been contaminated from past performance. If after your acquisition, you add to the contamination, you disturb the contamination, then um, you've lost the bona fide purchase, prospective purchaser status. So what constitutes a release or disposal of hazardous substances that may warrant consultation with an environmental professional and environmental attorney but let me give you some sense of what uh, what that means from cases 
that, um, that I've analyzed. There are cases addressing the issue of ongoing disposal versus passive migration, and that's relevant to maintaining BFPP status. So, for instance, in the environmental realm, there's the rather famous Ninth Circuit Carson Harbor case that held that the slow migration of hazardous substances from a tar-like material that was formerly dumped in some wetlands by Unical did not constitute an ongoing disposal to extinguish the current landowner's defense. So in other words, Unical had a um, uh, you know, processing facility there, and this tar slag-like material was the result of the refining, fuels refining, and it was you know, tossed into uh, a wetlands next to the site. The question, the question begun, becomes, what constitutes a release or disposal of hazardous waste? In, in the Ninth Circuit, when that was dumped into the wetlands, that was the disposal. And any ongoing release of the tar-like materials into the soil or the groundwater or surface water, since we're talking about wetlands, those ongoing distillation or release of, of the tar-like components, organic components, into, um, into the soil or the water, that's not an ongoing continued release. So a buyer, in that particular instance, can buy that property and say, no, 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 you, government, think that there might be ongoing releases, but uh, under the BFPP requirements, there was one disposal and one release when Unical put it there. So there's been no ongoing releases or continued releases after I purchased the property. And that's exactly what the Carson Harbor case uh, held. The case of SPC Limited Partnership versus Sparrow Points, which was a District of Maryland case, addressed the issue of whether a PFPP lost its status by engaging in disposal after the acquisition on evidence that the passive migration of benzene through groundwater released from a formerly ruptured underground storage tank that Sparrows Point had formerly drained and uh, removed following its purchase of the property constituted a current disposal. So Sparrow bought the property, uh, knew there was an underground storage tank there, it had some gasoline residue, some petroleum residue in there. Benzene is one of the total petroleum hydrocarbons. It's, it released a little bit. It spilled a little bit as part of the U.S. tank removal. And party suing them for cleanup said, you're not a BFPP because after you bought it, there was a um, current release of benzene. The court ruled that the release during the removal of the storage tank was passive migration, and it didn't constitute a, a current uh, disposal or a current release. The tank had been there for a long time. It was known to contain some petroleum hydrocarbon. The removal process wasn't done negligently. There was just a little bit that released, that drained out. So that would not be evidence of a future release or an ongoing release that would extinguish the BFPP status. 
Third, the all-appropriate all inquiry standard requires a purchaser to complete a Phase 1 environmental site assessment meeting AS, um, the American Standard Testing Materials standards within one year of acquisition. But the BFPP status protection can be lost if the purchaser fails to update the report sections within 180 days of acquisition. Should the Phase 1 Environmental Site Assessment recommend further investigation? We talked about that in our last podcast where we uh, defined what, uh, what is meant by Phase 1 Environmental Site Assessment and the innocent purchaser defense that relies upon a competently performed phase one environmental site assessment. And one of the points I made is that if the environmental, uh, if the phase one environmental site assessment says that there are some things to follow up on and they are not followed up on, then as the buyer of a brownfield, you can lose the BFPP protection. So, it's very important to have uh, phase one environmental site assessments reviewed if there are recognized environmental conditions that are identified that in the case of a brownfield there would be reviewed by council and that calendar entries be made to ensure that the phase one environmental site assessment is followed up on and the consultant closes the loop on all additional recommended uh, work within 180 days of ac- of the acquisition deadline this is this is a, a if you read a lot of cases about parties losing the bfpp defense this is another one that hooks them in they just forget the 180 day of acquisition deadline okay the uh, all appropriate inquiry requirement mandates that a bfpp make a no further affiliation demonstration and that means that neither the person if the buyer is a person or if it's a corporate entity or a tenant uh, of any person or corporate entity they don't have any familial or corporate affiliation with any potentially responsible party there's a lot to that in terms of what uh, affiliation uh, how affiliation is defined there's an expansive epa September 2011 memorandum that addresses the term affiliated with. That is an area that if you're concerned that you have some affiliation with another potentially responsible party, you're going to want an attorney analysis, an an analysis of the requirements as relating to the facts of your affiliation, what corporate status you have, what is the the, uh, personal, familial, corporate status that you have with um, that may be that may tie you rather with another potentially liable party it's a it's a it's a complicated uh, and, and deep analysis that requires attorney involvement all right so those are the um, threshold requirements there are seven remaining continuing obligations and those need to be emphasized because this is where people tend to get tend to forget the continuing aspect of the continuing obligations. They need to take stewardship and and make sure that they follow through with all of those. First of all, BFPP conditions require the owner to take reasonable steps to manage releases. You've purchased a property 
that has known contamination. It's a brown field. You got to be careful that if there are environmental control measures on site, for instance, if there are uh, operating um, soil vapor wells, if there are um, groundwater cleanup systems, that you allow those to, uh, to operate and you're not impeding them at all. And you have to make sure that if you're going to be developing the site, you're not doing so in a manner that could cross-contaminate other portions of the property or result in a release of, um, of contaminants that are, that are contained in, in a particular aspect of the property. These are all fact-specific to the property. So again, it's something that you will want to consult with uh, an attorney and the environmental contractor that the attorney can bring on on your behalf, or if you have one, work with your environmental contractor to make sure that your ownership is taking reasonable steps to manage the releases and not spread contaminants or make them worse. Next one, you've got to honor the land use restrictions and interim controls in place, i.e., talked about that a couple of times, not to impede groundwater monitoring wells, not to impede operating soil vapor wells, not to impede or put a backhoe through a, a, a vapor barrier or dig a trench and perforate a vapor barrier. You do those, BFPP defense has gone poof. You've got to fully cooperate with governmental requests for site assistance and access for those conducting uh, response actions. It's not uncommon for government representatives to want to um, inspect the site on, on a regular basis or infrequent basis, and they will always contact uh, the buyer or the buyer's representative to, to request site access to see, uh, to ensure that everything is um, as they understand it to be. If there's any interim controls, they're operating fine to take sampling of soil vapor wells, whatever it happens to be let them. And uh, if they have representatives or the representatives of responsible parties that may be cleaning up contaminants on other, on other sites that are not part of the designated brownfield site, but still there's some contamination from, from the brownfield site that is impacting others or whatever it happens to be, you, you, know, you have to cooperate. Fourth, Comply with governmental requests for information and subpoenas if they're reasonable. And this is an area where it would be prudent for you to involve counsel. It's not unusual for um, the government to issue what's known as uh, interrogatories or requests for the production of documents. Interrogatories are a fancy way to say questions where they ask you to answer those questions under oath, under penalty of perjury. And they're just following up to make sure that there's nothing of concern there, nothing uh, in terms of a change in the use or uh, potentially uh, unreasonable steps taken, or, you know, they're, they're probing to see if there's anything that you've done that might vitiate the BFPP defense. Those requests, based on, on my experience, in fact, I just finished responding to 128 of them of interrogatories sent to my client who 15 years ago owned an auto dealership in Northern California. And the DTSC has identified the release of 
contaminated gases in a two-block area, and they sent interrogatories to everyone on title in the two-block area that they could find to see if, um, by answering those questions, they would give up information that might make them a responsible party for cleaning up the new contamination that they have recently identified. And these contaminate, you know, they're the government, the 900-pound gorilla. So they ask for financial disclosures. They ask for tax returns. They asked for, you know, identification of corporate certifications, corporate minutes, corporate officers. Some of those requests may quickly drift from reasonable to unreasonable, irrelevant, privileged, whole host of evidentiary objections that may be raised. So if you get served with those, they're looking for something and your responses under penalty of perjury may be used against you. That's an opportunity, I think, that uh, would warrant the involvement of counsel. Next continuing obligation, provide all legally required notices of a prior release of hazardous substances. You will be told by the government as to what those notices look like. Provide those notices. Keep those notices up. If you're interested in acquiring a brownfield, you should employ a strategy to address the contamination and employ circular liability pr- protection. You want to, you wanna, as a threshold, fall under the ambit of the BFPP defense, and you want to continue to stay under the protection of the BFPP defense. So this strategy should include entering into a voluntary cooperation agreement with the agency, having regulatory authority over the cleanup, both to um, contain ongoing contamination release and craft a remediation plan approved by the regulating entity to obtain a no further action, covenant not to sue, and what's known as safe harbor determinations. That process will largely address the BFPP continuing obligations and lead to the um, former contaminated property's highest and best usage. Contractual indemnities and liability allocations may be appropriate. You might want to consider those. Environmental insurance is another option that you might want to consider if you're interested in, in acquiring a, uh, a brownfield and want to be uh, proactive about it. Purchasing contaminated property and maintaining the BFPP status. This is, this is the, you know, the takeaway from all of this. That requires a proactive strategy consisting of implementing, well, it's a strategy rather that's implemented on a team basis. It should be implemented on a team basis is what I meant to say. That is the owner, environmental professional, environmental attorney working on a team to make sure that Threshold continuing obligations are are met. Contractual liabilities uh, as part of the purchase are um, considered, checked off. Environmental liability might be a consideration. Considered, checked off, yes or no in terms of whether that uh, that makes sense. But it's a strategy that pays off for a lot of people. It um, does not for for others. People take to tend. Uh, Take the eye off the ball on some of these uh, uh, some of these standards. Don't do things as strategically and as planned as they should. But it can be done, and you can maintain uh, you can maintain the defense and, and uh, minimize your your liability if you um, follow some of the steps I recommend. 
So I want to thank you for tuning in to um, this edition of the podcast. And next podcast, we're going to be talking about what do you do when the government's knocking on your door and they want to tour your facility to inspect it because you're regulated. You could be regulated under environmental statutes and regulations governing the uh, use and storage of um, hazardous substances. Maybe you're creating hazardous wastes. But the key is the government's knocking on the door and they want to do an audit. What do you do? And we're going to be talking about that situation. What, what are the results of that situation in terms of does it lead to a notice of violation? What do you do about that? And how do you, how do you train your folks on site to deal with government regulators when they're there? So thank you again. For, uh, for listening, if you want to reach out to me, my uh, email address is tmontoya, T-M-O-N-T-O-Y-A at Alvarado Smith, A-L-V-A-R-A-D-O-S-M-I-T-H dot com. And my phone number is 714-852-6862. This is, of course, I'm sure available on my website, but uh, I'm just in the habit of, uh, of bringing it up again. Best wishes to everybody and take care. Thank you.